I invite you to, uh, to take the sermon outline out that you find in the announcement sheet. We'll use it as we, we look at this, uh, this last lesson on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus this morning. And we begin with a word of prayer. Father, we gratefully acknowledge that we are nothing without You. Without You, we do not even come into existence. And without You, our existence in this life is meaningless without direction, insignificant. Without a rudder. With, without, with, without purpose. And yet, with You we find not just forgiveness and the taking away of our, our guilt, but we find the blessing of peace and of joy and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and all of these different aspects coming into our life, Father, that brings about an abundance of hope and confidence as we look forward to the day that we see You face to face. And as we study this great event, Father, this morning, we're asking with all of our heart and in the name of Jesus that You give us eyes that see and ears that hear and that we turn toward You, having heard it, Father, to be healed. Father, thank You again for this opportunity. And in humility and modesty before You, we ask all of these blessings and these requests in Jesus' name. And all the church said. This week, all over the world, most of the world is thinking about the resurrection of Jesus and wondering about its meaning. There's a story that I've told you before about a, a Sunday school teacher that uh, had a bunch of little kiddos in her class one Sunday morning, and she wanted to know what they exactly understood, what they knew exactly about the resurrection and about Easter. So she asked all the little children in her class, why is Easter important? One little girl raises her hand and says, Easter is important because that's when all of the family gets together and you eat a big turkey and you sing songs about the pilgrims and stuff like that. And the teacher said, well, you know, I don't know if that's exactly right or not. Anybody else? And a little boy raised his hand and she goes, why is Easter important? And the little boy says, Easter is when you get a tree and you decorate it and you give everybody presents and you sing a lot of songs. That's why Easter is important. Teacher said, well, I'm not sure that's exactly right either. Is there anybody else that has an idea of what Easter might really be about? And another little boy raises his hand and says, Easter is when Jesus was killed, and then they put His body in a tomb, and they left for three days. And the teacher breathes out this sigh of relief, and she goes, finally, somebody understands what Easter is all about. And before she can say something, the little boy continues and says, then everybody gathers at his tomb and waits to see if Jesus comes out. And if he sees the shadow, then he goes back inside, and we have six more weeks of winter. <laughs> Would you agree with this statement that's up on the screen, that knowing the details of the resurrection doesn't always lead to a profound understanding of it. Would you agree with that statement? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. The last 48 hours of His life on earth and then His death on the cross. And this morning, we're going to look at what happened three days later. But in this study, what we've seen is there's so much that transpires in the dark. Jesus, on the last night of His life, is betrayed in the garden by one of His friends, by Judas. And it's during that same night that Peter, one of his closest 
friends on the entire planet during that particular part of his life. It's Peter, that, that, that main apostle, that leader of the apostles, that denies him three times before the cock crows that morning. And it's at night that Jesus is kind of run through that kangaroo trial and he's condemned to die. And then on that Friday afternoon, in the middle of the day, the sun stops shining, the whole land becomes dark, and Jesus dies. Three days later, on a Sunday morning, the women have gathered up some spices and they're going to the tomb. They're going with spices because they're going to anoint the dead body of Jesus. And they're probably wondering as they're going down the path to the place where Jesus' body has been laid, how they're going to get that gigantic stone, that boulder that had been rolled in front of the entrance into that, to that tomb, how they're going to move that. But by the time they get there, they realize that, that somebody has moved that stone. Somebody has moved it. It's, it's out of the way. And so they go inside and they are astonished to see that the body of the Lord Jesus is not there. And they're perplexed. In John's Gospel, Mary wants to know where, you know, they've, they, they, they've taken my Lord's body and I don't know where they've laid him. And then all of a sudden, while they're trying to figure out what has happened to Jesus, there are two men, Luke tells us in, Luke, in, the, in the passage that, uh, that Dylan read for us, there are two men in shining, dazzling white clothes that show up suddenly right there beside them. They're angels. And the, the angels, and the women are and the, the women are just astonished at this, and they're fearful, as you can imagine. Anytime you come into the presence of a divine being, and it's sudden like that, there's going to be fear on the part of any human being. The women are no different. They're afraid. And these men, these angels that look like men, in this dazzling white light, ask a very important question. Verse 5, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Let's say that verse together, church. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Now, that is what you would call a counseling question. I mean, it's, it's rhetorical. These, these men, these angels, are not looking for facts. What they're trying to do is to push the belief. Push the belief of the women with the facts that they already have. The women have made a great, colossal mistake in looking for the living among the dead. And as we read through this text, what we see are three mistakes that most people make when it comes to the resurrection. The first one is this. We expect the tomb to be full. We expect the tomb to be full. They did not expect a miracle when they gathered up their spices. And as they're walking down that path to the tomb, these women are talking about their heartache and about their grief and about their suffering. And they're, they're, they're talking about Christ being dead. And although they knew His teaching... On the resurrection, they expect the tomb to be full. They thought that He was among the dead. That's why they're bringing the spices. That's why the angels are asking Him that leading question. Why are you looking for somebody that's living where people that are dead are found? You see, the problem with, with the women is that they are thinking of Jesus like they would think about, and most people think about, all of the founders of all of the religions of the world. In all the other religions of the world, you have two things. You have teachings and you have tombs. You have the teachings of, of these folk that, that started these religions, and their teachings go marching on, but they don't because you have a tomb with them in it. 
And these women are kind of caught into that vein of thinking that the tomb is going to be full. He's like every other Messiah. He's like every other great founder of a religion in the world. The tomb is going to be full. The angels are challenging that. Why are you looking, knowing His teaching, what He said about the resurrection, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And then in verse 6, He's not here. He has risen. Remember, underline that word on your outline, underline that word in your Bible, remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The angels say that if this is how you hope to find Him, dead and wrapped up in the shroud of death, and you've come here to anoint that body with these spices and to take care of it and to love this dead body because you love the man that had once lived in it, then you're going to fail because he has really, 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 he's really risen. Now, how many, I, you have to ask the question how many today make the same mistake? You know, with this modern mind, we say, you know, we like the teachings of Jesus, we like the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if the, old, if the whole world could learn to live by Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, to love your neighbors as yourself, to be able to turn the other cheek, to be meek, to, 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 to be generous, and, and to not be materialistic, then the world would be a different place. But this resurrection is kind of nonsense. We're kind of this modern mindset. It's hard for us to believe that somebody that was dead is now living again. Ken Davis, in, in a book that he's written, tells a story about a woman who's looking out of her kitchen window one morning into her backyard. And she sees her German shepherd with the next door neighbor's rabbit in its mouth. And it's shaking the life out of this rabbit. And the woman screams and she grabs her broom, she goes outside and she begins to hit the German shepherd. And finally the dog relinquishes this very dead rabbit. And this woman's a little bit worried because the relationship with the people next door is not all that great. They're going to get angry and may even sue me. So she picks up the very dead rabbit, takes it into the house, and she washes it, and then she blow dries the fur, and then she combs it out and makes it look real good and fluffs it up a little bit, and then sneaks next door and puts the rabbit back in the hutch. About two hours later, she's looking out in the backyard again. The window is open, and she hears a scream from the house next door. And it's the next-door neighbor, and she says, Honey, 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 that rabbit that died two weeks ago has come back to life, and it's living again in the hutch. <laughs> True story. <laughs> You know, sometimes people don't have any problem whatsoever believing in a resurrection. But you know, the point of matter is this. It's always, been a, it's always been problematic. It's always been difficult to believe in the resurrection. And believe it or not, it was difficult to believe in the resurrection even in Luke's day as he's writing this gospel. He knows in his mind, because he's experienced it, that there is problem in his ancient world, his own world, even as an educated physician, he knows that the world is going to have a hard time believing in the resurrection. And so in Luke's second volume, known as the book of Acts, Paul is in Acts chapter 17. He's preaching in Athens, very educated town, city in, in the world at that time. But it's a town that is run by a platonic worldview, which means, you know what, the, the stuff that's material, like the body, terrible. It's corruptible. You want to get a, uh, away from the material. The body is bad. The spirit is good. That's the mindset that the people in Athens, for the most part, follow. It's Platonic. It's Plato. And so in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, Luke is preaching, and he preaches at the very end of that sermon that one of the ways that God proves that Jesus is the Messiah, that God 
is proving that Jesus is the Savior of the world is that He resurrected Him from the dead. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 32, in an ancient world, not a modern world, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them did what? Sneered. You know, some, sometimes we get it right in the English language. That word sounds exactly like what it means. It wasn't that they just disagreed with it. They sneered at it. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. That somebody is dead is going to come back to life and live forever. The point is, is that ancient people had, had trouble. They had problems and difficulties and issues. They had a hard time believing in the resurrection too. But Luke doesn't leave us just kind of hanging there with just the resurrection. Luke brings some evidence. And there's a lot of it in the Gospels. But let me mention one thing. In, in verse 10... Luke brings the evidence. He brings the names. The names were there to verify. In verse 10, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Joanna, and there's Mary, the mother of James. And the reason that they are included is that these people were still alive. And being very much alive, they could verify whether or not the, the story was true. That's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about Jesus appearing to all of the apostles and to him and to 500 brethren at one time and to other disciples. It's so that you could go, and if you really wanted to know, you, and if you didn't believe it, you wanted proof, you could go find one of those people and ask them, tell me what happened on that day. And that person would give you an eyewitness report. You know, the same thing happens today. Suppose I go off to, to Brazil for one year. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I'm there for one year. And uh, sometime during that year, I hear from a very reliable source, Ben Bailey that Bigfoot came into our church building one Sunday morning and came up into this pulpit and preached and 10,000 people were saved. Now, I can believe that or I can just dismiss it, but if I really want to know, then what am I going to do? When I get back to South Texas, when I get back to San Antonio, I'm going to go and contact Norris Elam or I'm going to grab Alan Babcock or I'm going to grab my wife who was here or Steve Flores or somebody like that and say, hey, were you there on that day when Bigfoot showed up? I understand Bigfoot showed up and there were all kinds of people that were baptized after he preached. And Steve was like, you know, I never missed a Sunday, but I don't remember Bigfoot ever showing up. I don't think that's true. The names are there to verify. So the first mistake is that we expect that tomb to be full rather than basing our faith in the teaching that he is going to be resurrected the third day. But there's a second mistake. We don't understand the resurrection because we don't understand the death. We don't understand the resurrection because we don't understand the death. Look at Luke chapter 24, verses 6 and 7. The angels say, He is not here, He has risen. Remember how He told you while He was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must, circle that word, be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Now all of these women, as they have gathered up the spice and they're heading out on that Sunday morning down that path to the tomb where Jesus' body is lying, the women knew that He had died, but it had not registered yet the meaning to why He had to die or that He must die. See, even if they're not wanting to believe it, the way that they are living their life right now, the way that they are, are operating in life is that Jesus is just another great man, another great leader, another prophet, another great thinker, another great philosopher that has been squashed by Rome. And subconsciously, they're thinking that Christ has left them 
really only one thing, and that's an example. An example on how to live. Christianity is really about living like Him and nothing more. But that is wrong. What the angels are reminding these, these women that have come to the tomb in love and in grief over the death of Jesus and in, in tremendous profound affection for Him is that they are completely wrong if that's the way that they were thinking about Jesus. Jesus had to die as a sacrifice, which is an insulting statement because what they're saying is you're not good enough on your own. He has to die for you. That's what we've been talking about the last two weeks. And not only is it an insulting statement that He had to die in your place, but it's an insulting state that you're guilty, that your life is so lost that that's what it took for you to find grace for you to find the gift of life, for you to find that forgiveness, for you to find eternity with God Himself. To these angels, living well is not good enough. Jesus must die. And as we've been looking over the last two Sundays, Christ saved us by becoming that sacrificial substitute. He was willing to lose the universe for a time in order for us to gain eternity. And then the last mistake is we hear, but we don't run. We hear, but we don't run. So we drop down to verse 11, but they did not believe the women. They hear, but they don't believe because their words seem to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself, pondering to himself what had happened. You know, Peter gets a bad rap. We talked about this last Wednesday night in class, that there are times though, when Peter is more beautiful than we, than we can imagine. And here's one of those moments. Jesus has, has taught His disciples. He has taught His followers beginning in, in Mark chapter 8 and going to Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10 and the same in the other, in the other synoptics and, and in John. It's the same kind of teaching that's going on over and over and over and over and over again trying to get them to understand that He is the kind of Messiah that is going to be crucified. But there's a reason for that. His, his death is going to be in their place. He's going to die the death that they should have died because He's living the life that they should have lived. And they're pondering it and they're wondering about it and they're trying to get their head around it and then it happens, and Peter gets word of what it is that has happened, that Jesus has resurrected, that He's not in the tomb, that He really has come back to life. And Peter, unlike the others, gets up and he runs to the tomb. And seeing for himself that it's empty, he begins to start putting two and two and three and three together to try to make sense of it. You know, there's a lot of people that hear the information, the facts, the details of, of the resurrection, but it never impacts them. It never impacts them. And the reason that they don't feel, you know, their arms going around the neck of Jesus is because they don't feel His arms embracing lovingly their neck, their, His arms around them. And they don't run. And they don't run because of the fact, the reality, the truth that He is not here. He has risen. Now, some years ago, we were on vacation. We had just come back from Brazil. We were in Branson, Missouri. And um, 
we, we didn't have a lot of money. We were ex-missionaries. We were uh, new back in the States. Very first vacation we had had as a family in a long, long, long time. And we went to Branson, Missouri. It happened to be kind of close to where we were living in Kansas. We found a couple of really good deals on place to stay. And we were able to do some stuff in Branson. But, you know, one of the, the, the great memories that I have of that vacation, I think my kids too, is playing in the pool while we were there at the resort. And I'd get into the pool and Jessica and Jordan would take turns jumping into the water and me catching them and then throwing them back, you know, uh, into the shallow end and them getting out. And we just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And doing it. Finally, Ellen got a little tired of watching that. And she said, you know, I'm going to go back to the cabin and take a nap and maybe get, get something to drink or something like that. You guys want something? I said, no, we'll stay here in the pool. She said, okay, you make sure you keep an eye on those kids. And you may not know this, but, uh, uh, but, but Jessica is, is very sane when it comes to water. Jordan, not so much. And uh, when he was about five years old or four years old, I, forget, I think he was four when we came back to the States, he had no fear of water. And he didn't realize that if you go underwater, you can't breathe. Because I was always there to catch him and throw him back in the end where he could walk back out again. And so Jesse and I are kind of playing. He's gotten out of the pool because not only was he not fearful of the water, but the water made him cold. He's shivering. He's cold. He's white like a sheet. And he goes and he lays down on a towel next to the pool. And Jesse and I are playing in the water. And the next thing I hear is a kersplash. And I look over and Jordan has jumped into the deep end. And, I mean, he is not under that water maybe a second and, and I'm thinking to myself, I told him, 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 don't jump in the water, you'll, you'll drown, you'll drown, you'll drown. And here he is, he's done it. He has no fear of the water. So he gets into the water, he's down like one second. I grab him, pull him up, he's, he's, he's spluttering, bluttering water all over the place. And he goes, Dad, I drowned, I drowned, I drowned. <laughs> and I said, you didn't drown, my son, you didn't drown. Your dad's big arms were there to grab you. You didn't even come close to dying. You didn't even come within a mile of drowning. You were never in danger, my son. My arms were there to grab you. And by the way, let's keep this between you and me. And let's not tell mom. <laughs> the, the news of the resurrection is not, is, it's not just good news. It's true news. It's true news. That in life, when you're, you're honest and, and you realize that the danger is that you're about to slip under. You're about to go under. And you don't know how you're going to make it. Your arms are tied by trying to keep yourself afloat. You've been trying to do everything on your own. You've been trying to keep yourself, your neck and, and, and mouth and nose above water, and you're, going, you're slipping under. And you don't know what you're going to do. That's when you need to allow His arms to come and to grab you and pull you up. Another way of saying that is when you hear the news of what His death, burial, and resurrection means, then run to Him. Run to Him. Because it's not just good news, it's true news. When, when John, thinking back on, on all of the stuff that Jesus taught in the third chapter of John, He goes, he goes you know, God so loves the world that even though it's filled with a lot of miserable, phony, cowardly slobs like us, God sends His Son to die for us because we can't live the life that we ought to live. And He's the one, through love, that is going to die in our place so that we don't have to. He dies the death that we should have died. 
And that's not just good news, it's true news. And Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. We're going to sing one more song, a couple of verses of, uh, of It Is Well With My Soul. But what if it's not? What if it's not well with your soul? Do you believe that the resurrection is true? Then you can believe that it's good news for you. And if you believe that it's good news, then believe that it's also true. And if you find yourself slipping under, if you find yourself in danger of going under and there is no one who is going to be able to pull you out, then this morning, come down and talk to these shepherds. You can go down into the waters of baptism and participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that John talked about right before we partook of the Lord's Supper. And we can die to those sins and come up to, to, to a new life as Christ resurrected literally and truthfully and honestly in that tomb on the third day. That is yours this morning. But you have to run to Him. And you can do that this morning as we stand and sing together. When peace.